The conversation you're about to hear happened last June. Since then, there has been some changes. And this is a quick update before starting the episode. For the past 11 years, Jeannie Riddle was the director of Parisian Laundry, a contemporary art gallery in Montreal. During that time, she assisted in launching the careers of important Canadian artists, including Valerie Blas, David Armstrong Six, Celia Perrin Sideras, among others, all of whom enjoy wide visibility thanks in large part to her efforts in doing so. This part of her identity reinforces her sense of self as an artist, and she maintains a noteworthy and dedicated practice. She has a reputation for passion, critical excellence, and a mind for details as an artist, art thinker, and critic. The time has come for her to step away from the role of director and focus entirely on her artwork. All the Into This Podcast family wish Ginny the best of luck and success in all future projects. And also, happy birthday, Ginny. Okay, now back to the episode. Hi, this is Marx Ruiz Wilson, and you are listening to Into This, the podcast where I get to explore contemporary art through conversations with artists, curators, writers, collectors, students, and more. This is the first episode of the series, and if you haven't and want to know more about this project, you can listen to the trailer. There, I talk about how and why this idea came to be. But now that you're here, why don't you just go ahead and listen to the first conversation? This was recorded a warm June day in Montreal. I hope that you guys enjoy it, and thank you very much for listening. All right, there you go. It's official. get up at five in the morning because I love to go work out in the morning. I love it so much. And uh, I have coffee. Then I arrive to the gallery and I begin emailing, checking social media, communicating with artists, communicating with collectors, writing invoices. Ideally, these are all good things. Often making travel plans because uh, I'm kind of wide quite often. And who are we talking with today? My name is Jeannie Riddle. I am a practicing visual artist. I am co-director and curator of a contemporary art gallery in Montreal, Canada. I am a single mom. I am an educator. I am a thinker. And I am a free spirit. That's, that was one of the best introductions I've ever heard. Awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. So when did you decide that you wanted to be an artist? How did that happen? Hmm. I don't... I don't think there's a decision that's made necessarily. I think um, I think things just happen. I'm I'm definitely a creative person and always have been. Um, because of sort of rough roads in my young life, it it took me a long time to sort of forge through uh, a career path or a professional trajectory, and. At one point, I applied for art school, and I didn't get in. And I thought that that was really a bummer. I didn't know what to do, and I, I didn't have a mentor or guide around me, unfortunately. 
And so those schools said, okay, well, you didn't get into art school, so how about you study women's studies? And I was like, oh, okay, women's studies. Yeah, that sounds great. You know, and I definitely named myself a feminist. That felt strong to me. And at the time, which was like the early 90s, part of gender studies then was uh, about um, unpacking identity politics and also a shift in sort of how one thinks through a curriculum. So I was able to produce art projects. And I guess what was different is that there wasn't a criticality to the work, mm -hmm. but the work felt strong. So whatever the idea or thesis was that I was bringing to the creative act. Were, were you making the I art? Was, I was making yeah. art. Okay. I was doing performances sure. as sort of lectures. It just made sense to me. But I didn't know any of the rules. Anyway, long story short, shortly after that, I moved to um, California where I lived on and off for almost three years. Okay. And uh, I met artists there. Yeah. And, you know, they would come to our sort of live work studio and I would show them my work and they would, you know, proceed to give me a critique. And I had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> I had no clue. And it was actually an interesting time because, you know, there's that sort of thing, like once you know, you can't not know. But when you come in and you, I just felt so balls out. I was just like, well, no, this is my work. You can't tell me anything. My work is complete. This is what I want to do. Because I had no sense of what that structure or guide is. Yeah. You were free. Completely I was free. free. Yeah. And it was fascinating. And I, I try to draw on some of that energy in my current practice to remember that there was risk of sort of self-reflection, self-narrative, and what I wanted to deliver through my work. Yeah. In any case... After my daughter was born, coming back from California, uh, I applied to art school again, and I got in. She was born in California? She was born in Montreal. Montreal. We, we came back uh, when I was seven months pregnant. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So you, you wanted her to be a Montrealer. I wanted her to have <laughs> health care. Sure, sure. <laughs> Frankly. Sure, sure. More yeah, than absolutely. anything. And yeah. at the time, my late husband and I, we were not married in, yeah. in the United States. Yeah. We eventually got married in Canada. Um, It just it wasn't the best feeling. And in San Francisco at the time, there was, like, rampant drug use, of which both my husband and I were participating mm -hmm. in. It just was not a healthy environment sure. for us. Sure. So we decided to leave. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so I started art school, and I was such a serious student. <laughs> <laughs> like, because I... I thought that it was so rigorous because I had not been accepted in the past. So I just brought everything, everything and anything. And I just took anything I could in. I was just a sponge. And it, I don't know, it all worked out. And I, I just haven't stopped since then. Yeah. So and that's like 18 years ago. So you're from Montreal? I'm from Montreal, Anglo-Montrealer. Oh, yeah. Where, yeah. where do you grow up? I grew up in Westmount, uh, quintessential Anglo enclave. Uh, At the time, it was probably middle class to a uh, parent's stay-at-home mom and a professor dad uh, who died when I was very young um, and then watched the struggle of my mom trying to raise two daughters. And then she also died <laughs> when I was 19. And since then, I've been on my own forging 
whatever this life is. And consequently, that's become part of who I am and part of my thinking and probably why I have such a depth of thinking is because I have all of this lived experience. Do you think that the little time that you had with that, did that influence you into thinking this way, into being free spirit? I I don't remember. remember yeah. I don't remember. I don't know if that's a consequence of, yeah. you know, midlife, but it I think I was too young and I'm I'm conscious of that now mm -hmm. because Whatever life has dealt me, my husband also has died. And uh, we had a daughter together who was nine mm -hmm. when he died. And in one way, I was able to handle that chaos, if you will, with a certain element of control because of my lived experience, while at the same time sort of unpacking what that means. Yeah. And a lot of who I am and what I do, what is part of my work comes from all of that, trying to negotiate that, trying to control certain materials or situations, installation. It's all part and parcel of who I am. Chini holds a bachelor's and a master's of fine arts from Concordia University. As an artist, she has participated in solo and group exhibitions in Canada and also internationally. In his latest book, titled Curationism, David Balzer writes, quote, If curators began to dominate the art world in the 90s, they began to dominate everything else in the 2000s, unquote. According to Balzer, nowadays for curator positions in museums and galleries, a PhD or doctorate in arts is quickly becoming the norm. I asked Jeannie, how did she get to be the curator for the Contemporary Art Gallery Parisian Laundry in Montreal? I, I never thought of myself as a curator necessarily. Yeah. It just, uh, it happened organically. Um, when I was finishing my master's, I was older. I had already had my daughter. And uh, I was really interested in my teachers more than my peers because because of what I was living at the time or that I was just probably 10 years older than all of them. So my lifestyle was just completely different. And I was really interested in um, the back story of how administration happens, what is in Masters of Fine Arts, what is a school, what is an institution, what are sort of the rules and the boxes that you can break through or be within. And uh, I happened to land this gig at Parisian Laundry. And honestly, we really didn't know what we were doing. Sure. It just felt natural to want to show art, want to show art produced by my peers. Uh, we didn't have an objective to sell it. We just really wanted to sort of amplify a certain scene. And then through people showing and exhibiting at the gallery, they're the ones that started calling me curator. <laughs> and then after a while, you're like, okay, well, I have to own this. Sure. And, you know, it came with a certain um, discomfort, frankly. But at the same time, I mean, if, if, if that's what lends power or, or power, that's loaded, but <laughs> lends a certain, I don't know, check mark. No, sure to the objective, then I'll take it. No, 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 no. But a lot of my friends are starting artists. And for some of them, it's really hard to declare themselves that. Mm -hmm. 
And so I can only imagine if if people start calling you something that you don't even are thinking about, mm-hmm. which is curation as a title, mm-hmm. that must be a shocking yeah. kind of feeling. But know? it goes back to fear, maybe. So that, that is anything right. that is of an experience, until you can sort of own it, yeah. you know, yeah. when you when you start owning it and say, yeah, I can do this, that feels right, it feels mm-hmm. good in my mouth mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. then you can sort of forge forward. And then people will look at you with a certain way and understand that you have an, an opinion, that you have experience around what you're doing. Yeah. So that's how I'll, me as a curator is seen. I don't, I don't have a, like a rigorous academic background in art history. Mm-hmm. I, I have learned through making and exhibiting and then all of the exhibitions I've worked on with artists also. Yeah. And I think that's what's special in that I have never not been an artist through this. I have continually exhibited, researched, thought, think, still think, do the, all of this at yeah. the same time working with artists. Sure. So it becomes quite special. Right, absolutely. So let me ask you, uh, did you start the project together with other people or the project yeah. of Parisian Laundry was already started? Parisian Laundry is owned privately by a man named Nick Tedeschi who is um, just wonderful and uh, humble and uh, very generous. And, um, you know, he had this beautiful building, and he didn't know what he wanted to do with it. And he was working um, with a a special director at Concordia who put me in touch with him, and I asked him if we could have an exhibition there. And he loved it. It was really like his first experience with contemporary practice. And... I should just back up for a second because he he is he was a collector, but he was looking at like Quebec modern, Canadian modern. So this was like an opportunity for him to meet practicing an actual artist, and it changed him. And immediately following that exhibition, I left on a residency, and on my return, he and I had a lunch, okay. and we discussed the potential of a project, and then it just evolved. It's been quite special that way in that at this point in the gallery's career, I think that we have a pretty strong international profile, too. And we do our best now as, you know, a quote, quote, commercial gallery dealer, too. We're representing artists. But at the same time, that energy of of art for art's sake, if you will, mm-hmm. is still there. Mm-hmm. It's still mm-hmm. vital to what we're doing and to our sort of recipe of success. Have you encounter artists that make something thinking that that's something that a curator wants, uh, that the artist says, okay, so this curator likes this, 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 and this. I'm going to aim for that. Is that something that happens, or is more the curator going around and then choosing something for a show? Mm-hmm. I don't try to direct people's practices. Yeah. I can bring suggestions, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, whether whether it's based on the experience of what I've seen as successful for a particular artist or for the success that the gallery achieved with a specific artist. But we're not really in the business of telling an artist what to do, ever. We, we for sure will, will guide them if they want it. You know, that's why studio visits are so critical. An ongoing engagement with the artist is critical. But to sort of say, oh, yeah, I want seven three-by-four paintings and, you know, give me some works on paper. Uh, 
It's not our style. Right. We really, we're really interested in what the pursuit of, you know, intellectual knowledge is around art making okay. and how an artist can deliver content through that material, okay. through their artworks. So it's idea driven. It's, yeah. it's critical. Yeah. So that, you know, that intellectual feeling that you're looking for, do you think that comes usually from academia? Hmm, good question. <laughs> hmm. Okay, I mean, this is maybe me and my sort of criteria of working with artists, but for sure when you meet an artist that has achieved a master's, like any other profession or, or field of studies, they have additional time to reflect. And it's, it's time that hopefully is met with risk and that through that risk they're discovering something which we could also talk about as a sidebar it's fine, it's fine. Yeah. you know at the schools mm -hmm. but um it's time more than anything and and somehow time can equate excellence sure like with anything you know yeah. it's not it's not through the action but it's through the repetition yeah that we learn. There is, there is a concept is called deliberate practice. Mm -hmm. right? And lately I've been reading a lot about it. And it is exactly that. It's how much time you need to perfect something mm -hmm. and what kind of things you need. And one of the main things is a, a guide, mm -hmm. a professor, a you know, instructor, or somebody who has more knowledge than you and they can tell you, everything that has happened before you in a short period of time mm -hmm. so that you don't have to spend all that time acquiring all the skills and everything mm -hmm. for you to be better at something. And so in that feeling, in that sentiment, do you think that a professor has a big influence in an artist? Yes. <laughs> a quick answer, yes. But I don't think it has to be necessarily the professor-student yeah. relationship, I think that that sort of role modeling can also happen, well, with a gallerist or with a curator or with a peer, that, that as human beings, we should be responsive and acknowledge that other people have information that we don't know. So mm -hmm. why not share mm -hmm. always? Mm -hmm. So that's like my MO is, sure. you know, how do I tell you my experience and hopefully you get something from it? and vice versa. And I mean, that's to me like the act of making art. It's communication. Yeah. So yeah, sure, a professor, if you sort of have a great relationship with them, yeah, that person will end up being your mentor. So say in my case, I had one great professor, I loved her. I loved her because she brought some sort of international flavor to things that I hadn't considered, much like you're saying, like introduced me to some artists that I just had no idea. And then after her, you know, Nick Tedeschi at the gallery, like, he has just been my mentor. Yeah. And it's not because he knows more about art than me. It's that I can share my knowledge with him, and then he can share his knowledge with me. It's a perfect relationship. I like this idea of a guide, because I think a guide, too, not as a person, but as, you know, a sort of structure of activity and action. If you have an objective and you're working toward that, you can sort of start controlling, going mm -hmm. back to that, but, mm -hmm. you know, controlling or formulating how it is that you're going to get to that end. Mm -hmm. So, 
at the gallery, you know, we've always sort of insisted on this idea of critical international visibility. And so how can we do that? How can we sort of keep forging forward? Do we invite other artists from around the world? Is it through the production of publications, uh, the online and social media presence, uh, attending international art fairs? All of those things, again, are sort of check marks towards this objective. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully, too, within sort of the partnership that happens at the gallery, the artists that we work with and work for have the same objective. So they're doing their part you know, attending international residencies, meeting other people, and all of those things sort of make this world. So you just mentioned international art fairs. Yeah. Um, I was reading an interesting article, actually a book, about curation. And this guy was talking about how those art fairs are curator for curators. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Because at the end of the day, you go as a curator, and you may want to bring that artist or that piece somewhere. Mm -hmm. either a museum or a gallery mm -hmm. or something. Um, how do you feel about those art shows? I think they're massively important right now. And I've, you know, been on a seesaw with this. Um, but I think it's a consequence, too, of like, of, like, Instagram effect in that you can attend an art fair through social media right now, but nothing, nothing tells you about the work more than experiencing it. So... If an art fair is either, one, a shop opportunity for a collector, or two, a place where you can sort of begin a research, which is what I always see. Like, you go through, you'll sort of see the same works in the same galleries, but then every once in a while, there's something that will strike you. Mm -hmm. And then you can look at that work and then begin a research around it. And hopefully it offers something new. Yeah. And I think, too especially at the art fairs, what's amazing is like, like any international activity, you get to see people from all over the world. So an art fair or a biennale, you're meeting people. You know, we call them like the art gang. Like, there they are. Everyone sort of comes in. You see them at the airport, like, here, that's this weekend. Everyone's here. Hi. Like in many other walks of life, art as a whole is a social activity. And as such... Things like validation and approval, power and hierarchy, as well as unfairness and inequity are some characteristics to be found in the art world. I am sure this will be easy to relate to whatever you do for a living. Jeannie and I talked about these very human aspects from her perspective, as an artist, curator, and also a mom. Thinking again about universities. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I'm always very interested in asking to artists and, and people like you, is what the word validation means to you. Validation, wow. Uh, great, great. Um, validation. Well, it means a lot, frankly, for sure. I mean, again, here I am mentioning my daughter again, but, you know, I have been watching her scholastic career mm -hmm. and when she receives accolades and approval, it definitely means a lot to mm -hmm. me. And I take it quite seriously. I really want her to excel. I definitely tell her that regardless of the validation, that what, it, what she is doing is learning to learn. Mm -hmm. So again, it goes back to this questioning. So even if 
an answer isn't validated or she's not getting what she wants out of a response, to know that she's doing her best to learn something. Mm -hmm. And that that, to me, is valid. Sure. That I offer that validation that she is pursuing knowledge. So even if her education doesn't say, oh, yeah, that's great in accordance with how we're imagining it, I know that if I can validate what she's doing, that that gives her more and more esteem towards a pursuit of knowledge. Yeah. And in terms of you validating artists. Yeah. See, that's more power. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's yeah. what it is? I think, I think yeah. I mean, I think yeah. that we definitely have, you know, structures of hierarchy and power that, again, if we break down a certain identity politics, you know, like for me, I'm really interested in sort of moving away from a heteronormative, patriarchal white system and centra centrality And again, imagining other positions or optics in and around that. So in that way, and for me even to be able to say that, it's because I am so crucially aware of the power that I have. You know, I'm a, I'm a white woman. I have a job. I have a pretty nice lifestyle. I have food in my stomach every night, every day. I don't really have to ask for anything. So that knowing that I have that power in myself and then through my job, there's power. A lot of power. A lot of power. And I think it's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I don't think that happens very often in arts. That someone acknowledges that yeah. power? Yeah. Or that somebody owns that too. No, no. But I think, again, like it really is in terms of how one breaks down their identity. Mm -hmm. And if they are involved mm -hmm. in identity politics and mm -hmm. what privilege means yeah. in its depth. Yeah. And it's something that is part of my feminism and part of who I am in the world is to really locate oneself in the world and then acknowledge difference. Mm -hmm. And I try to do that not from a central point, so not from my system, but acknowledging that there are multiple centralities. Mm -hmm and then working from that. Mm -hmm. Diversity, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So if I'm able to offer power because at the gallery I can select artists and artworks and you know, hopefully sell them so that an artist can sustain a lifestyle too, well, I think that comes with a responsibility too in that I am addressing a relationship with the artist. It is a partnership. So yes. what does an artist want and what do we want? and then try to sort of forecast and forge forward. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in, in the uh, corporate world, mm -hmm. it is impossible not to acknowledge that there is a gap of many things, but one of them is salary between men and women. Mm -hmm. How is that in arts? It's arts <sighs> neutral? Really? <laughs> no. I mean, if you look at any major galleries roster, You know, there is def definitely a gender discrepancy, and we're not even getting into, uh, like, the world of sort of transgender either. It's like, it's definitely, you know, a parallel, or not even parallel, but it's definitely male-female, and I don't know, probably 70-30 breakdown. It's, oh, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. There is an absence of female artists, and not to mention trans artists. Oh, yeah. We're not, we're not... 
a happy, loving family. Yeah. There, it, there, there are discrepancies, absolutely. Yeah. And I think about them, and I think about the absence of female artists and why that is and why mm-hmm. that happens. And not only in art, but in professional mm-hmm. trajectories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'll often hear, well, you know, woman, woman, a baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. <laughs> that's part of what our role is, is that we can be carriers of life. You know, or we can adopt. But again, like because of who we are in the world, there can also be two parent situations where those two parent adopt children and maybe they're both of one gender. Mm -hmm. So then who acknowledges that Mm -hmm. power or that hierarchy? Mm -hmm. But again, I'm more interested in sort of these parts of it, that there's not just one thing, but that there are multiple potentials. Yeah. But I mean, the art world can be market driven too. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, people's. Professional lives and careers can be made or broken from the sale of an artwork. So if a female or a female-identified artist is not achieving that, how do they progress? How do they sort of build through, you know, the hierarchy of the art world? I was talking to Valerie Blass Mm -hmm. once, and she mentioned something to me that I never thought of it. Mm -hmm. And she told me, collectors... Mm -hmm have the power to control culture. Mm, cultural protagonists. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. And But I never made the connection between what we were just talking about, mm-hmm. which is those gaps and those unfortunate mm-hmm. differences. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that can be really strong. If somebody has that power to acquire important art and to be such an influencer, mm-hmm. has those ideas, then you understand more or less where is it coming from. Mm-hmm. Well, they have their own agenda, too. That's right. You know, again, like you can't, it's one thing for us to say things and, and sort of, okay, yes, we know this. We agree. We agree that we see a gender gap. Mm-hmm. And we understand that, oh, if someone's doing something, they're influencing. But then we don't know what that person's objective is either. Maybe they have a specific reason why they're collecting one person. You know, we come with our own assumptions and then we want to fight that because we oppose it. But they also might have a reason. Mm. And I'm just being very mm. generous, frankly. No, you, you're being very open-minded with <laughs> that. I'm trying to be open-minded <laughs> with the hopes that, again, that, that these shifts are occurring because of conversations like this, mm-hmm. that that there is a potential to be thinking further, mm-hmm. to not just accept the fact that it's just such a duality, but mm-hmm. that, okay, well, maybe there's a reason why. Mm-hmm. And that it's not only because a gallerist and the collector have decided this agenda. And that to acknowledge the fact that we all have an agenda. So I have an agenda to work with female Absolutely. artists too and to do my best as, as a mentor for female or gender-identified female artists. It's important to me. You made a point mm-hmm. of that. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. But I do find it funny, and by consequence, that, you know, like right now I think the roster at Parisian Laundry has a lot more males, <laughs> and I'm not sure how it happened, but I don't, I don't know how it happened. Well, it could happen because we also represent BGL, so that's three guys right, right away. So, mm-hmm. you know, it tips the scale. How many artists do you guys have? Uh, 12. 12. Yeah. yeah. And that changes how often? 
Um, not too often because it's such a dedicated practice mm-hmm. to be working together with an artist and mm-hmm. imagining a career path. I mean, the biggest change recently was you mentioned Valerie Blast. She she um, recently left Parisian Laundry for mm-hmm. another gallery, mm-hmm. and uh, and we acknowledge the fact that this other gallery has a bit more leverage in the international, and I think it's a good step. Mm-hmm. And we have no animosity to that artist. We think actually that, um, you know, we did certainly our best for her and obviously that gallery also saw that best so I feel like you know my job is done okay sure. I did I did the best that I could for that artist yeah. and I and I I'm actually complimented by the fact that you know she was picked up by another gallery Absolutely. like an like an incubator like a mom yeah it, it feels it feels very much like you care I care care and I think that that's a very strong, a very important characteristic of a curator because mm-hmm. that it comes from there, right? Mm-hmm. It comes from caring for something. Exactly. And yeah, yeah so that, that's very, it, it's, it's very nice that you can let go of those things too, you mm-hmm. know, that you don't want to keep things happening just for you, that you are interested in the progression of the whole community, mm-hmm. you know, not only us, what is important for you, mm-hmm. which is, that's great. Yeah, we were talking about 12, 12 artists you, you have. Mm-hmm. And how were they picked? Oh, that's a good question. Well, uh, myself and Megan Bradley, the other co-director, mm-hmm. who, uh, I, I mean, we're always looking. We're always interested. We're always looking at what current practices are. Um, she definitely has optics on uh, American and international uh, and I'm really interested in emerging artists out of the universities here and and across Canada and the United States. I mean, I'm not it's not just Montreal, <laughs> yeah. but I'm I'm very much interested in emerging practices in the same way that working with Valerie was so so good for me is that you you start and you're working together. So you're you're building a career path together. You're building a partnership. Mm-hmm. And it, it just feels right for me to be doing that. So you're you're that guide. You're you're working with them. You're working alongside them. I want to ask you as an artist and curator, mm-hmm. how is that communication? How is that dynamics between the two parts? Yeah. How does it go when you're putting together a show? Yeah. It's different every time. You know, there are artists like myself. I'm really uh Exhibition is a means to me. It, it means a lot to install work. Uh, maybe that's why it makes me an interesting curator, too, because I'm very much influenced by space and architecture and, and our bodies in space. Um, so it's really dependent. But I think opinions matter. So, you know, talking through ideas with the artist about how they want to engage a space or a non-space, and how they imagine that viewers will come to that work. All of that is what matters for me. And then oftentimes, too, there's sort of, you know, formal ideas, too, that happen and how works are sort of integrated with one another. And in my own work, you know, like my last show, I also had curator friends that Mm -hmm. came in to talk to me because... Like any other artist, I also need opinions. Yeah. I had, you know, some ideas about what I wanted to see reflected. But at the same time, I know that distance is interesting. Yeah. That once you offer that space for someone else also to say, hey, well, what if this happened? 
And then you try it and you're like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah. And now, I mean, you can try it on Google SketchUp. You sure. don't even have to do it in the space. And you can yeah. get a sense of, you know, how Great. things will flow, mm -hmm. what that means, if there are sort of new ideas that happen in relationship to the works and the site. It's fascinating. And there are artists that are, you know, like artist curators yeah. and, and more and more that that people are understanding the impact that they want from their artwork in, in a space situation. They, they know what the idea is behind it. And then it's true that you'll sometimes see shows that are definitely curator-driven, and <laughs> you can see a difference, too. Yeah. Hi, here Marks again. I hope you are enjoying the conversation as much as I did back when I recorded it. I do have a favor to ask you. I would love to get some feedback from you, the listeners. I am far from being a professional podcaster or at Contemporary Arts, so any advice or any other comments from you will be greatly appreciated. You can find all the info in the website intothispodcast.com. There you will also find links to our social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Please reach out. Okay, let's go back to the interview with visual artist and curator Jenny Radel. I've heard that people say that sometimes making art is easier than not doing it for some people. Yeah. That's how you feel? Easier. Easier, easier, easier. Not easy, not easier, but yeah. no more, let's say, more natural yeah. to do it than not to do it. Yeah. But I think it depends on the person's practice. Yeah. You know, it really, art making is so wide open right sure. now. So, I mean, I'm definitely like a material-based mm -hmm. artist. It's important to mm -hmm. me. I, mm -hmm. You know, I studied through painting. I make sculpture. I just did photography and a video. It's just, it's wide open. As long as the content and the idea is what is transformed, that's what's critical to me. Sure. To, to know that I'm delivering content. Yeah. And that's what I want from artists. That's what I want. That's what I want from life. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't want things that are empty. I want them to be important. And in that sense, content weighed against skill. Mm -hmm. Is that something that are you always balancing? or? I think skill comes with experience. Okay. It goes back to sort of yeah. this idea of time and practice and experience. Yeah. It, I think that one can learn. Yeah. If you do something every day, you're going to learn how to do it. You know, the, the force of a gesture, you know, working out your body, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You're going to understand that you're able to do this. And then every once in a while, you can increase that difficulty and I'm see what happens. I'm thinking about works as I was, I told her, I was recently in Vancouver and I went to the gallery and um, there was a, a section where they were talking about the ready-made mm -hmm. concept. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I... I started thinking about that specifically, how much of an important cultural movement is against the skill that an artist can have. For example, mm -hmm. uh, the champ with the urinal. Sure. You know, it, there's a, probably a lot of content. I wonder how much of a skill that is mm -hmm. and how is that balanced? Mm -hmm. like, so I, what? I think there's intellectual skill. Yeah, okay, sure. So mm -hmm. I, don't, mm -hmm. I don't really care if you know how to render a hand. I don't care. It, it does nothing for me. Yeah. I just, I want to ensure that, that the work is rich somehow, that you're offering me something. I think, think ready-made is fascinating territory. I think now there's an appropriation of ready-made too that has transformed ready-made into 
the ready-made ready-made, <laughs> that we're looking at something and it's actually not ready-made, but mm-hmm. it's been, it's convincing as such. I think all of that is fascinating because it, it reflects our time and our time of, of Duchamp or, or of minimalism and post-minimalism and, and pop. Sure. You know, those are sort of like my art historical graphs that make sense to me to sort of start from minimalism and pop art. So the ready-made is definitely there, and, and, it's, and, and it's an in- influencer. How important is history of art in getting to produce your own art? Simple answer, knowledge is power. <laughs> you know, I mean, you have to know where you come from. And, I mean, you said earlier that maybe what's interesting about a professor is that they can encapsulate time for you and deliver that. But I think part of being critical or rigorous in how you're thinking about your artwork is to know that you're not alone and that it's interesting that way. Like, oftentimes you'll see an artwork from around the world and you're like, hey, that looks exactly like that person in Toronto or whatever. And it's like, how does that happen? And it's, I think, a consequence of all of us looking at the same thing. But I think the challenge is how you're going to shift that. What are you going to do with it that's going to challenge people? And there, you know, there's, there was an artist, uh, Richard Hamilton, I think mm-hmm. it was, when he said, uh, uh, you take something, you change it, and then you change it again. And that was sort of his guideline or rule to sort of make art for himself. Sure. But I think that in, in, again, like knowing all of these things and then thinking about them and thinking about the signifiers around a certain material, what are you going to do with it? How are you talking about it? What's it, what's it doing? Asking yourself all of those questions all the time and then asking more questions from your answers. Yeah. You know, questions with questions. That's, I think that's the only way to pursue knowledge Sure. and therefore art making. I feel that a lot of people feel like that with arts, that you can come to it from zero. Yeah. And, you know, and, and some people do, but then you can see that. Yeah, it's evident. It's transparent. I mean, I think, I mean, that also comes from the consequence of being a viewer and experiencing artwork or, you know, any other form of art making or natural sciences is that if the viewer, too, has an experience of that form of communication, they also bring a certain richness to the experience of that sharing moment. Mm-hmm. So they can understand something, too, and that relationship can be forged further. But I also think that art making is not only about experiencing art, yeah. but it's about remaining a critical thinker to the world. So, you know, like this is an interesting day. The UK has just separated from the yeah. European Union. Yes, yes. That's, this, yeah. is, this is a global shift. Oh, yeah. And we're, we're in this moment. Sure. So we are, we are currently part of history in the making. Yes. So to imagine and question what that's going to bring and, and what will happen to art. What does that mean? Yeah. There's been a, there's been a, there's been a, a break. Absolutely. And that's interesting that you bring it up because I feel that to explain anything that happened, of course, that is so much easier to see it in retrospective. Mm-hmm. And I feel that that happens a lot with art. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to pinpoint something that happened before. And then you say, oh, I can see it now. Mm-hmm. But I feel that either artists and also curators, most, most importantly, 
need to be a step forward of that. Mm-hmm. Or, like understanding or current. Or, or current. Mm-hmm. But to understand what is happening now, you know, and, and, and that, I think that that's a very, very interesting sensibility mm-hmm. to, to arts. How, can you develop that? How do you develop that? Well, it's thinking and, and being wide open and, and being sort of, you know, a receptacle of information and, 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 and feeling strongly and opinionated. I think that not only for artists, but I think for anybody, frankly, is that the pursuit of knowledge should be a priority and the pursuit of critical thinking always so that you don't take anything on face level, but that you sort of break it down and, and again, ask more questions. And then ask yourself, why am I interested in this? What is it about this particular information that is fascinating me? What's it doing? You know, things, I don't know, like beyond the UK, like what's happening in the United States of America? You know, we're seeing like flagrant racism at at a level that is is impossible, that this can't be happening, Mm -hmm. and yet it's right in front of us. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? How do we engage with that as critical thinkers and art makers? Mm -hmm. What are we doing? We can't just be passive. We can't just offer lip service. Something has to happen. Something has to give. You know, there's moments where I think, what if artists just stopped making art? You know, for a while during the sort of so-called AIDS epidemic, there was, you know, December 1st was always seen as day without art. And everyone was meant to, like, cover their art and acknowledge that for sure the LGBTQ community was part of art making. So what would happen if there was an erasure of that? Hmm. And all of those things can can be influencers. Mm-hmm. We can all proceed with change if we desire change. Yeah. It can happen. Yeah. And art is part of that. Mm-hmm. For sure. That is that is a reaction to some to to something that comes from the outside towards the artist. Mm-hmm. What about the other way around? The the other way around when art is made and something happens with that and something happens with the artwork yeah yeah that's interesting <laughs> for sure that the art comes first in a way mm-hmm. but i don't think it ever does no i you think, think that, that it's always reactive to i i think it's maybe proactive sure i think that it can be reflecting on an idea and then sort of amplifies that idea but i i don't know if it can ever come first mm-hmm. i think that if an artist is thinking it's because of what is around them mm-hmm. and then how that sort of translates from their practice into their object or video or whatever, their idea. I've seen a lot of artists that they perfect one thing. They perfect one type of art mm-hmm. and they continue and they continue and, and they do well with that. How important is in your opinion to change it, to explore new things, to grow as an artist like that mm-hmm. or to continue in the, uh, maybe you found your niche in the market mm-hmm. and you continue in that way. Yeah, like you, it doesn't interest me. <laughs> no. And I mean, this is a personal response because sometimes, you know, again, the art market can have an influence yeah. on how someone approaches their work. Absolutely. But I think that, again, like I'm someone that thinks through an idea. So if that idea tells an artist that, well, actually, I think I'm going to use water and that'll be interesting, but they're coming from a background of video, but they want to explore water. 
well, I'm wide open to it. I, w- I want to understand how that happened and how that shift. And then ideally, you will see a, a continuity through it. But I'm all about exploration. Yeah. If, if it, Whatever it takes to translate the idea, to make it whole, it, it will make sense. Yeah. And you'll, you'll understand, again, if the artist is good, you'll understand that, that it makes sense somehow. Mm-hmm. Something about their work and their practice, their ideas, can be fueled through their materiality. Sure. Whatever it is. This is a general question because just in this brief conversation, I can notice that you are you live your work, you 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 feel it, you you are that. Mm-hmm. There are people that are not super sure that they what they want to do. What would be an advice for those people? How would you go about finding something that is for you? Well, you have to decide who you are. I mean, that's... Sometimes that's pretty tough. Of course it's tough. <laughs> of course it is. Yeah. I mean, but we're all unique somehow. We all offer something. So you just have to understand what that is. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it goes back, like, maybe you're not an artist. Maybe you're something else. Mm-hmm. But just find what is unique about you mm-hmm. and, and what you need to say. Mm-hmm. And then from that, if you can deliver that message and, and you believe what you're doing, well, it's going to be noticed. And if it's noticed first by you, you know, for me to make art, I make art because I have to. I don't really have a choice in it. It's, it's like it's beyond language for me. Yeah. It's that I need to break down these ideas. Yeah. In my practice, I need I need to. I, I don't have a choice. Is there an end goal, though? What is your end goal? Peace. Yeah. You know, peace and sort of a reconciliation with with me and 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 the experiences that I've lived. I'm 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 trying to to look at pain and look at love and look at who I am in the world. And then make work in and around all of that. Mm-hmm. And ideally message it to people and know that none of us are alone. That we're all delivering something. And we can share it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're not alone. No. Definitely, definitely not. No. And for you, in your realm, and, and personally, the word success, what is that? I feel successful. But I feel successful... Not because of what I've achieved, but because I, I have a sense of being self-actualized. That I know that the steps that I'm making and how I progress is because of who I am. And that I have my own sense of purpose. So that success is met at a place where I can keep going that I feel vital, that I'm alive. Yeah. It's pretty simple. I, I th- no, no. I don't think it's simple. I think what you said talks about your own self-reflection because normally for many, many people, success means something that they haven't thought of. Mm-hmm. Success means something that comes from outside. Success means either have recognition from people. Success means have money maybe for some people Mm. and I feel that success is something that you dictate to yourself definitely we are getting pretty close to the end of the episode 
Back when I was getting ready for this conversation, I asked Jeannie if she wanted to tell me a story for the podcast. She accepted, and I hope you guys like it as much as I do. This story is coming at the very end of next segment. Okay, let's go back to the show. What would be your advice for Jeannie Riddle 15 years ago? 15 years ago. It's not really a long time. <laughs> no, it's not. But let's say when you when you were stay real. S- yeah, stay real. Stay who you are. You know, I mean, again, like I had a beautiful husband mm-hmm. who was not in an artist. He was he was a DJ and a music lover, and profoundly interested in music. And you know, we would talk a lot about art. And he wouldn't necessarily understand the work that I was doing, but he understood that I needed to. And I think once you know those things and just don't let anybody else tell you what to do. Just go for it mm-hmm. and make sure that it's what you need. Yeah. And that is the same advice that you would give to a studying artist? Today. I do. <laughs> That's what you do. I do. And I mean, to starting artists, take risk, yeah. you know, especially like in art school or in spaces where you're amongst friends know that what you're doing is sort of, (laughs) I know this is sort of a buzzword, but a safe space, you know, that you can allow for things to happen. You can allow for experiments because if you don't, well, you're just being static. Mm. And in all, in all this talk about art, Mm. which is important to understand the privilege Mm -hmm. that, for example, we have just be talking about it here. I know. And it's a privilege for me to have you here. Thank you. I really, really, really want you to know that I'm flattered Thank you. that you accepted to of course. have this conversation. That's awesome. Um, so what is the story that you have for me? Yeah, it was, I thought it was interesting that you asked me to tell you a story. So instead of telling you a story, I brought a story that I wrote. And actually, it's 11 years old. And it's, um, it's sort of small experiences that I see as sort of corporeal banal, but these are sort of capsules of what I think about in my work. So I thought I would read it to you. Fantastic. This is called One Floor and One Model. On the bus, she imagines leaning over, fiercely embracing the man beside her, her tongue tasting his upper lip, eyes closed in an unprotected moment of behavior. Would he object, violently throw her off him? resent his space being penetrated by her wanting, her need, would he call her ugly? She notices his leg twitching. She imagines a wall. The lane of bricks are like experiences. The graffiti like scars or notches on a tree. Omar was here and Samuel, Jerry, Maya, Stephen. Scars, scars, scars. Her stop is next. She rises from her seat tilting her head to gaze once more at the object of her desire, capture the memory, as if it were real, as if it happened. She runs her tongue over her lips and steps off the bus. There's more. (laughs) Ooh, I'm out of breath. And at night, she could rest, dream new visions, live in territories not yet known. The day he had suffered a massive coronary attack, They found him high up the hill, fallen and dazed without shoes. 
She tries to imagine his confusion, his not being lost, but more looking for home, trying to locate his path, trying to find his way. He never recovered. He was buried on a humid July morning, wearing a suit. She wonders if he arrived hot. I need some water. I'm shaking. <sighs> Each morning she sips espresso. One March morning, she comes across an interesting story in the newspaper. She reads that a man had been charged posthumously with drug and weapons offenses. Three months earlier, he'd been shot dead by a police officer. She can't help but see the complication. She thinks about death as a place where time stops, where reinvention is a given, and where your past is at once erased. She thinks of the boy's mother. She tries to imagine what drugs and weapons, like the marijuana she keeps on the mantle in a tin box, or the $180 chef's knife in her kitchen. She didn't realize the baggage would follow her when she dies. She's hoping to travel light. An unleashing of lost desire or fixed possibilities. She packed her belongings weeks before the move would take place. She was pleased with herself for living so minimally. Her choices becoming calculated and controlled, never random or difficult. Even a mealtime was less of a chore. She left two pots unpacked, one for rice and one for vegetables. Eating from her one bowl in her now packed apartment felt new, uncompromised. She was beginning to forget the artifacts that she'd packed. She was losing track of the plans she was imagining for her home. The morning the movers came for her possessions, she no longer needed them. She felt no obligation to her stuff, no engagement with the evidence of memory. She looked down from her balcony at the collage of suitcases, boxes, and garbage bags. Slowly, she began the process of forgetting. She felt light. She was floating, erasing the past, unleashed, and ready to begin. amazing you, you you didn't tell that story just with your voice i just wanted to know that no you told the story from my soul. every single yeah jenny thank you very much thank you that was really interesting that was the first episode please let us know what you think of the show go to intothispodcast.com where you will find emails and links to social media into this podcast we'll be back in three weeks with more conversations I want to personally thank Jeannie Riddle for being such a great guest. And I want to thank you guys for being such great listeners. All right, I'm Mark Rhys Wilson. Catch you soon. Into This Podcast is produced by Mark Rhys Wilson. Milton Matthews is the sound engineer. Original music by Masto Gajo. Victor Garbay is the visual designer. Special thanks to Raul Aguilar and Anistan Morin for their help with the edition. You can find more information about the collaborators in the website, intothispodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm going to record a minute of silence. silence. Unless you can hear my heartbeat. Yeah, probably could.